We're looking at uh, Proverbs chapter 6, starting in verse 20. And we're going to read on through Proverbs 7.27. Proverbs 6.20 to 7.27. This morning, as we continue our trek through Proverbs 1 to 9, as many of you know, Proverbs 1 through 9 contains these 10 fatherly addresses from King Solomon to his crown prince of a son, where he's trying to instill and implant wisdom in the heart of his son. He's trying to prepare his son to one day rule and reign as a good and wise and righteous king. And as Solomon's words here are inspired by the Holy Spirit, they're also the words of God. We find here our God, our king, our our own father seeking to equip us as citizens of his eternal kingdom. He's seeking here to equip us to live as his royal people, as vice regents who rule and reign under his kind rule forever and ever. And he's, he's equipping us for this high calling. And as he's doing that, he brings us again this morning to the subject of sex and sexual sin. Our text is coming to us in two main parts. The first is in Proverbs 6, 20 to 35, where we find Solomon exhorting his son to heed wisdom concerning sexuality and warning him to avoid the destruction of sexual folly. And then in all of chapter 7, we find another one of these, um, uh, what we called last week, a, a portrait of a fool. We, call it, we find another portrait of a fool where Solomon is giving something of a parable that illustrates his exhortation and warning this morning. And that's what we find as we look now at Proverbs 6.20 through 7.27. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen to these words now with reverence and rejoicing, because these are the words of our God coming to us through the pen of Solomon the king. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress, Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry, but if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight and the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, The woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home, now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I've paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from the Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. 
Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. And with her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her, as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me, and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. John Bradford was a a Protestant preacher in England in the 1500s. He was known as something of a passionate preacher of the Bible. Uh, Some have hailed him as one of the most admirable men to live since the apostles, which is high praise. And history slash legend tells us of an occasion in which Bradford was, was preaching in his town square one day when a group of criminals began to then be led through the square on their way to execution. As they were being led through, Bradford's hearers, the, the crowd that had gathered, looked at these prisoners with disgust and disdain. And the story goes that Bradford looked at the criminals with compassion, touched his hand to his chest and said to his hearers, who's made me to differ? But for the grace of God, there goes John Bradford. As we continue our series through Proverbs 1 to 9 this morning, we come to yet another passage addressing this subject of adultery and sexual sin. And in this particular passage, as we saw last week, we we come to a a portrait of a fool, a simpleton, a, a young man who unwittingly gets caught in the trap of sexual sin and is thus led off, as it were, to his own execution. And in this, just as we saw last week, this portrait is being painted before us that we might see something of ourselves in it. Seeing that this very well could be us apart from the wisdom and grace of God. And thus we, we find a warning here, a cautionary tale inviting us to thereby be resolved to avoid these same dangers. We're to see this young man here being marched off to his death and we're to say, without the grace of God's wisdom at work in my life, that will be me. And you might be wondering then, didn't we just talk about this subject just two weeks ago? And not only that, isn't this the third or fourth time that this subject of adultery and sexual sin has been brought up in Proverbs 1-9? to Why do we need to talk about this again? Well, friend, this is one of the reasons we're devoted to preaching sequentially through books of the Bible here at Veritas. Because let me tell you, I, I probably wouldn't be prone to preach on sexual sin this many times in a few short months, right? But in preaching sequentially through books of the Bible, on, on the one hand, you're being protected from my hobby horses, the things I'm passionate about and would be prone to talk about a lot. And, and, and on the other hand, you're also getting to hear about things that maybe I wouldn't be as prone to talk about, and you're hearing about them in the proportion that God has set in His Word. And in, in other words, in preaching sequentially through books of the Bible like this, you're hearing about the things God wants you to hear about and in the exact proportion God wants them to be emphasized. And wisdom concerning sexual sin here in Proverbs is a huge emphasis. It's a huge emphasis because, as we've seen, on the one hand, sexual sin is so alluring. It's so particularly tempting, so often so attractive. It's, it's uniquely seductive in comparison to, to all sorts of other kinds of sin. But also, secondly, because sexual sin is so uniquely destructive in a person's life, isn't it? Sex is powerful. It's a powerful thing 
in the right context, it can bring life and bring health and vitality to a marriage, and it can be such a powerful force for good. But as with anything that's powerful, if it's wrongly used, it can be uniquely destructive. And that's true of the gift of sex, when it's misused and abused in our lives. When it comes to sex, friends, we might just be one decision away from completely wrecking our lives. Really, all it takes is one moment of weakness, one moment of folly, one foolish decision, and with it, we can bring devastating consequences down on our own heads as well as on the heads of others. That's why Solomon is so emphasizing this subject as he addresses his son here. That's why God is so emphasizing this to us. He wants us to be prepared to be armed with knowledge and wisdom because sexual sin is seductive, but suicidal. And that's the big idea that we're looking at this morning. We'll take it with those two main headings there before we close with some shorter points of application. We're going to be seeing that sexual sin is seductive, Sexual sin is suicidal. First, sexual sin is seductive. Our, our text in Proverbs 6, 20 to 25 here begins with something of a familiar refrain. Solomon says, my, my son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. And again, we're finding here that the father's and mother's teaching is here being treated as being identical with the word of God. And that's because what Solomon is doing here is he's trying to really just hand down the truth of God's word to his children. He's teaching God's word. And, and you can see this very clearly, clearly here since verses 21 to 23 are echoing the language of Deuteronomy 6, that famous passage we know as the Shema, where parents are called to pass on the word of God to their children, right? The Shema of Deuteronomy 6 tells us that that parents are to speak of God's word in our households and with our children when we sit down and when we walk and when we lie down and when we rise. The word of God is to be consistently on our lips and consistently in the ears of our children in our homes. But then this verse goes on uh, to, to, to go further than just echoing the Shema. And it begins to describe some of the, some of the benefits of a Shema kind of household it shows that, that doing this offers us the protection of wisdom, right? It says that the Word of God, if bound to your heart and applied in your life and invading your home, verse 24, it will preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. In other words, if, if your life is filled with the wisdom of God's Word, the words of sexual seduction won't fool you so easily. But see here how, how Solomon does indeed give the devil his due, right? He says that this adulteress, which, by the way, might be more accurately translated as the strange woman, right? Not strange in like she's kind of a weird person, but strange in that she's not, she's not familiar. She's not known. In other words, she's not your wife. She's a, a stranger to you in that you're not in covenant with her. That's what strange woman means here. But again, Solomon gives the devil his due. Even while the, the, the words of Scripture offer protection when applied in our lives, the words of this strange woman are still alluring. It says that her tongue is smooth. She's a smooth talker. And still, Solomon says that's not even the only tool at her disposal. She's also got her beauty. Verse 25, do not desire her beauty in your heart, do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. So she's got her words, she's got her beauty, and these are not to be underestimated. They're alluring, they're attractive, they're seductive. And the parable in chapter 7 there illustrates this very point. If you look there at verses 6 to 21, you're, you're going to find a very persuasive woman seducing a rather simple young man. Starting in verse 6, Solomon sets the scene. He tells us he's just looking out of his window one evening. We know Solomon. He really likes to just observe things. And as he was just sitting in his window one evening, sitting, observing, he, he once saw a stupid young man passing by the house of this strange woman. And this was the young man's first mistake, of course. Thomas Brooks and Precious remedies against Satan's devices. He says that the best course to prevent falling into a pit is to keep at the greatest distance from it. And this young man didn't heed Brooks' advice. He, he walked right by the pit. And as he was doing so, 
passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight and the evening at the time of night and darkness. Behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. And it's here, verse 13, where she seizes him, she grabs hold of him, she kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices. Today I've paid my vows. Now that might seem like some weird words to say if you're trying to seduce somebody. What does a sacrifice have to do with this? But what, what's being referred to here is, is that she's made a sacrifice at the temple. She's made a, the, the peace offering. And part of what the peace offering included was that you got to take some of the meat for yourself, some of the meat from the sacrifice for yourself. So in other words, she's saying, I've got a meal prepared at home, and I want you to come over and eat with me. And it's so twisted and perverted because she's talking about the divinely ordained practice for worshiping God. And in the same breath, she's inviting this young man over, and not just for dinner. She goes on, I've come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. There's some, there's some flattery here. She's saying, it's specifically you that I want. And I've prepared this whole thing with you in mind. She says, I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. And then she says to the young man, we won't get caught. Verse 19, my husband's not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He's far away. He took a bag of money with him. That's at the full moon, he's going to come home. He's going to be gone for quite some time. Come over. I, I'm promising you all pleasure and no risk. We won't get caught. You're the exact kind of man I've been looking for, and there's a meal to boot. It's seductive. It's seductive. I know as we read this text, some of us might have lingering troubles in our minds because this text and others like it have have often been read, and some have claimed that these kinds of texts demean and degrade women. Some have said that texts like this objectify women as sexual seductresses. It's been said that it promotes an attitude of suspicion in Christian men toward all women because women are portrayed here as sexual temptresses, and, and unfortunately, at times, this text and others like it have been treated and interpreted and taught in a way that seemingly confirms those claims. And so this text oftentimes in, in our cultural moment is dismissed as outdated, sexist, problematic teaching on sex and sexual sin. It's, it's seen as being harmful for and being bad for women. And I think if you really think about it for just a moment, you see that 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 couldn't be further from the truth. This passage does not objectify women in general as sexual seductresses, right? The Bible as a whole honors women as those who, along with men, bear the, the very image of our Creator, right? The, the Bible views both men and women as showing forth something of the beauty and splendor of our God. We're like little mirrors that reflect something of the divine nature, and that's one of the primary teachings of the Bible concerning humanity. Women are not objects in view of that. Women deserve honor and respect as image bearers. And it's within the, that overall context of biblical teaching that we find the book of Proverbs, which as we've seen, speaks very frankly about the kinds of temptations we're inevitably going to meet with in our lives. And it's exhorted us to wisdom in light of those looming temptations. And as it's done that, a rhetorical device that we've seen used to communicate those realities again and again is this device of personification. It's shown us thus far that we're going to meet with temptations to greed and ruthless living. And Solomon has personified temptation to greed and ruthlessness as a gang of peers with their seductive invitations to riches and power. We saw that in Proverbs 1 and 2. Solomon has, has likewise personified wisdom Wisdom, this concept of wisdom, as an attractive, alluring lady. He's portrayed wisdom as a person, namely a beautiful woman that's inviting and bold. And we've said that Solomon has done this because his son is a young man. And, well, it makes sense that wisdom being portrayed in such a way might catch his attention and be somewhat alluring for him. 
But then consistent with that pattern of personification we've been seeing, Solomon is now portraying sexual sin and temptation as a, also a beautiful and alluring woman. Partly because sexual sin is often seemingly very attractive. But also partly because his son is a young man, and that's probably the most likely form of sexual temptation he's going to experience in life, is the enticement of a beautiful woman. It's not because women by nature are more likely to be seductive tempters. Perhaps if, if Solomon was talking to one of his daughters, he would portray sexual temptation and sin as an attractive predatorial man. But he's not. He's talking to his son. And so it makes sense that he portrays sexual sin and temptation as an attractive and alluring woman. And with that, it doesn't take a great deal of mental gymnastics to see how this passage really applies to all of us as God's people, both men and women, and how it's really serving to alert all of us to the seductive nature of temptation to sexual sin. Because sexual sin is just particularly seductive. It's particularly enticing. Part of what's so dangerous about sexual sin is that oftentimes temptation to sexual sin is just very attractive. You might be wondering how so. Well, sexual sin is, is often so attractive partly because it just appeals to our senses and sexuality as human beings. Notice in Proverbs 7 here, the strange woman appeals so much to the senses and sexuality of the young man. She grabs him, kisses him. There's a meal involved. There's a bed that's been decorated with beautiful colors and scented with gorgeous fragrances. She's invited him to take fill of love all night. Proverbs 6, 25 and 26 speak about her beauty and her eyelashes. Sexual temptation often just appeals to our senses and sexuality as humanity which is enticing because, well, partly because God created us as sexual beings. He created us from the beginning with sexual desires and sexual capacity, capacity for sexual pleasure. As we saw in Proverbs 5 just two Sundays ago, that's not a bad thing. Sexual pleasure is a powerful and good gift designed and given to us by God, but you know, we also live in a post-Genesis 3 world. Which means that our sexuality, along with every other part of us, is now fallen and prone to folly. And because sex is so powerful, and because our sexuality is fallen, sexual sin presents a uniquely potent pull in the human heart and body. Right? Sexual sin is so seductive partly because it just appeals to something good and natural in us, and also because it appeals to our very powerful, sinful proclivities as fallen humanity. Then further, part of the reason sexual sin is so seductive is it's because it's everywhere. It's almost constant. It's seemingly relentless. Proverbs 7.12 portrays this, this strange woman as being now in the street, now in the market, at every corner. She lies in wait. She's at every corner, it seems, he says. Temptation to sexual sin is all around us. Solomon's trying to show us here that sexual sin, sexual temptation is everywhere. And part of me is just kind of amused at that verse. It makes me wonder what Solomon would think of our time, our place. This kind of temptation seemed to be everywhere in Solomon's day. I, I don't even want to know what he might say about ours. We, we, of course, we live in an overly sexualized culture, in a culture that is simultaneously somehow weirdly obsessed with sex, but then also treats sex as just a common commodity. One theologian said that, that we're, a, we're a pornographic society, right? Explicitly sexual images are everywhere. It's in our advertising, marketing. It's almost constant in our entertainment, marketing. Uh, television, our movies, our commercials, our ads, our music, social media, if you're on it for even just a few moments, presents overtly sexualized images of men and women and boys and girls all for your casual viewing. And that's to say nothing of, of the easy access to internet pornography that plagues our society. Right? Al Mohler said that, that we live in a society with ambient pornography. That is, we, we live in a society that has explicitly sexual material in images and messaging, and it's all just part of the ambiance that we live in. It's just a natural part of the atmosphere, unfortunately. It's everywhere we look. 
And because of all of this everyday ambient porn and through all of this constant messaging about sex that we receive on a daily basis, we're always running the risk of becoming more and more desensitized to sexual sin, which in turn is part of what makes it all the more seductive for us. We've got to be constantly on guard against this because sinful sexuality is constantly before us. We'd be wise to heed the, the wise words of the brilliant philosopher Mad-Eye Moody, right? Constant vigilance. Harry Potter, I don't know. You guys might not know. You guys are Christians, so you don't read any of that witchcraft nonsense, right? Now, we need to always be on guard because temptation to sexual sin is, is everywhere then perhaps this is one of the most alluring aspects of sexual sin. Part of what makes sexual temptation, temptation to sexual sin so alluring, so seductive, is that it appeals to our desire to be desired. It appeals to our desire to be seen and known and appreciated and admired by another. Do you see how the strange woman does this? Verse 15 of chapter 7. She says, I've come out to meet you. It's, it's you. I came to seek you eagerly. I found you. There's a flattery here that appeals to his desire to be desired and seen and appreciated. Right? Alan Noble sort of points this out in his book, Disruptive Witness, about those, um, act, those old Axe body spray commercials that used to capitalize on this. They would portray some normal-looking gent who gets no attention from beautiful women, but then he would spray himself with Axe body spray, and in a moment later, he'd be surrounded by a, a sea of beautiful women who are all over him. And of course, those who watch it look at that and go, that's just ridiculous. I know that wouldn't happen. Axe body spray doesn't produce those kinds of results. However, it's interesting that those commercials just assumed that being desired in that way would have an automatic appeal to potential buyers. Because attention, being seen and noticed and desired is something we all want, right? It can be intoxicating to be desired by another person like that. It can so quickly hook us. Because listen, we, we all desire to be seen and known. That's a natural human longing. And in fact, it probably shouldn't be surprising then that some of the leading reasons given for married people having committed adultery are things like, well, this other person was just really there for me. Or my spouse just wasn't paying me any attention. Right? Those are not legitimate excuses for infidelity, but they do speak to this innate longing we all have to be seen and known and desired and appreciated. And temptation to sexual sin will often seek to appeal to those desires, which makes it all the more seductive. Sexual sin is seductive. It wouldn't be tempting at all if it didn't appeal to us in one way or another. But as Thomas Brooks has said, a poisonous pill is never a whit less poisonous because it is gilded over with gold. And so it is with sexual sin because while it's alluring and attractive, while it is indeed seductive, it's also suicidal. Which as we see here as well, Sexual sin is suicidal. Verse 26 begins to show some of the ramifications of sexual sin, which I believe that the ESV doesn't offer the, the best translation for, as we read earlier. It's possible that the ESV gets this right, but there's another possible way to translate this verse that has more of a historical precedence going for it. And the ESV shows that translation in a footnote. At the bottom, if you have an ESV, it says, for a prostitute leaves a man with nothing but a loaf of bread. Meaning sexual sin can quite easily lead to a life of poverty and want. Just something we saw in Proverbs 5 quite clearly. The rest of the verse ups the ante. A married woman hunts down a precious life. In other words, adultery and sexual sin can wreck and ruin your life. Verse 27, sexual sin is likened to fire. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? In other words, sexual sin is not just wrong. It's stupid. It's like playing with fire. 
Back to the story of the strange woman and the simple youth. Proverbs 7.27, Solomon says that the young man who followed the seductive woman is like an ox that's going to the slaughter. It's like a stag caught in a trap, just waiting. That arrow is going to pierce its liver any moment. It's like a bird rushing into a snare. Solomon says of the young man, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And after delivering this cautionary tale, Solomon, he turns to his sons. It's like he he grabs them by the shirt and he gets in their face with utter concern and desperation and love for them and he pleads with them. He says, and now, oh sons, he's pleading, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim as she laid low. All her slain are like a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Sexual sin, he says, will kill you. It will ruin and wreck your life. Other kinds of sin may have Slain its thousands, but sexual sin has slain its ten thousands. Beware, steer clear, don't go there, don't give in, avoid it at all costs, you won't make it out alive. And again, here as we as we look at the suicidal nature of sexual sin, I, I can see how some might be kind of perplexed by what we're talking about here, or even somewhat offended by this. You know, part of the criticism. The Bible and Christianity receive sometimes in our modern world is that we have a stunted view of sex. So we've claimed this is part of what's wrong with Christianity. It has an abysmal view of sex and human sexuality. It treats sex as destructive and a danger, as a dangerous thing when it's actually a very natural and beautiful thing. And of course, we, we should admit that there are Christians both now and in the past that have had far too low of a view of sex. We've seen it as being kind of a base thing or a necessary evil. And yet when Christians have viewed and treated sex in that way, it's not because they were being faithful to the Bible. Quite the opposite, you see, because the Bible treats sex as a profound and powerful gift. It's a sacred and precious thing. Sex, according to the Bible, was created and designed by and given as a gift from God in the beginning. It was his idea, sexual pleasure existed before the fall, before sin entered the world in Genesis 3, before sin and the curse ever entered the world, there was God, and there were our two first parents that he created in that flawless, pure world. Sexuality and sexual intercourse and sexual pleasure all existed then, all in utter beauty, in this conjugal sexual union between a man and a woman, and it was very good. And the goodness of sexual pleasure in conjugal union is meant to continue to this day. We saw this in Proverbs 5, right? When Solomon was exhorting his son to enjoy white-hot sexual passion and pleasure with his wife. He told his son to get carried away, to be intoxicated with the wife of his youth. The Bible's not against Sexual passion and sexual pleasure. The Bible presents sex as natural, as beautiful, as powerful, as a precious gift. But it's because sex is so powerful and precious. It's because sex, it's because of the sacredness of sex that sexual sin is taken so seriously and treated so severely. Right? And this is intuitive. We we know that the power of a thing, even a good thing, the power of a thing is directly related to its capacity to either bring life if used correctly or devastation if used incorrectly. Passage illustrates this as a, you know, this sexual sin is a, a man getting burned by fire. He's carrying fire close to his chest. And what happens? Well, when you use fire recklessly, you get burned. When you handle fire recklessly, you get burned. But then just think about for a moment how wonderful of a gift fire is to us as human creatures. Because of the use of fire and heat, we get to bring warmth into our homes that protects us from the blistering cold in wintertime, which you might forget what that feels like this week. But Because of fire, we, we get to cook food 
in order to enjoy safe, delightful, delicious meals. When I think about the gift of fire, I think about just many times I've sat around a campfire with family and with friends. Many conversations I've enjoyed. Many relationships that, that, that have been built and strengthened and cultivated. When I think about fire, I can't help but think about barbecue. Barbecue. I mean, can you imagine? Just imagine a world without brisket. Smoky, barky, salty, peppery brisket. Imagine a world without ribs, pulled pork. Perish the thought. All because of the gift of fire, right? And yet when it's misused and mishandled and recklessly treated, we get burn victims. People get injured. People get killed. Houses, neighborhoods, entire cities have been laid to waste by out-of-control, irresponsibly handled fire. And so it is with the gift of sex. It's a sacred gift given from the hand of the Creator God in order to cement and cultivate one flesh union in marriage. It's a sacred gift meant to give pleasure and joy to those who have made these lifelong vows to each other. It's a sacred gift that brings new life into the world and builds and strengthens families. It's a good gift, and yet when mishandled and misused, when used recklessly outside of God's good design for it, sex brings destruction and damage. Sexual sin is suicidal. Verse 23, it can cost you your life. And we might be tempted to see that as being very hyperbolic, or you might think that we're overstating the consequences here. But be sure of this, sexual sin can cost you your life. Remember this happened to a, a, a friend of mine just a few years ago. I had a close friend years ago. And, and, and young man, when we were young, I spent a lot of time with him. And in 2018, he was caught in sexual infidelity by his fiance, which had been going on a lot for a long time. And in utter devastation of the fact that he wrecked his life, he went to the top of a parking garage here downtown and jumped to his death. No, another man that was stabbed in the chest as he was walking out of his house in his front yard one day by a jealous lover. You know those who have been affected by sexually transmitted diseases that have completely altered the course of their lives and compromised their health, and some of those diseases can potentially take your life. Be assured, sexual sin can lead to actual literal death in some cases. And even when it, when it doesn't, Jonathan Aiken once put it that, that even when sexual sin doesn't cost you your life, sexual sin can cost you your life as you know it. Right? Sexual sin might cost you your family. Can lead to divorce, the loss of one's spouse, can lead to broken homes. Even if it doesn't go there, can rob a marriage of respect and intimacy. I've seen that happen. Even if it doesn't go there, it can lead to the loss of respect among one's children. I've seen that happen. Sexual sin can lead to you losing your job. I've seen that before. It can lead to loss of reputation and respect among friends and family and community. I remember hearing one pastor who was discovered to have been in a adulterous relationship with a young woman in his congregation. And after the fact, he said that adultery in his life was like a, a stone being dropped into a pond. And the consequences of his adultery were like ripples continuing to emanate further and further out as the course of his life went on. There were immediate effects, loss of job, loss of marriage, but then throughout his life, he said that, that he would go on to face new consequences over and over. He talked about how when he had committed adultery, his, his kids were too young to understand. But then later in life, he had to explain it to them. And the utter dread he felt seeing the look on their faces. Sexual sin, even if it doesn't cost you your life, can cost you your life as you know it. And that's true, even if you repent and take refuge under the cleansing grace of Jesus Christ. Listen, the cross of Jesus Christ is sufficient for these things. 
even if you've utterly blown it and wrecked your life with with sexual sin, your eternity can be secure. You can be forgiven in the courts of heaven. You can be set on a new path, a path not of destruction, but of life and hope. If you trust in him and by faith receive his cleansing grace, Jesus and his cross are sufficient for these things. But even when you take refuge in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there are many earthly consequences that will still be there waiting for you. And what's more is that sexual sin, if not repented of, will cost you your life eternally. Even if it doesn't cost you your life temporally, even if it doesn't cost you your life as you know it, if you live a life of sexual decadence and sin, rebelling against the God who created you and who will one day judge you, even if you got off scot-free from any and all earthly consequences for your sexual sin, a day of reckoning is still coming. God will not be mocked. He will one day judge in righteousness. And for all who turn their backs on him and reject his voice, crying out and calling you into the paths of wisdom, God will judge, handing you over to an eternity apart from his blessed presence. Sexual sin is seductive, it's attractive, it's alluring, but it's suicidal. It will cost you your life. It will cost you your life as you know it, and if not repented of, it will cost you your life eternally. Five brief applications before we close. First, discern that your creator knows best. Discern that your creator knows best. We've been saying that wisdom is the skill of living in right relationship with everything in life, and that it begins with and proceeds from living in right relationship with God. It's a skill of living in right relationship with everything in life that begins in being in right relationship with God. And listen, wisdom begins with and proceeds from being in right relationship with God because he's the creator. This is his world. We are his creatures. Everything that exists exists by his design and making, and thus he's the one that we should learn from if we're going to learn to live in accordance with our design. If we're going to learn to live in harmony with the design of everything around us, and that includes sex. Sex is his idea. It's his creation. We're his creatures. Thus, he's, he's the one we ought to consult if we're to practice sex in a safe and satisfying way. Abraham Kuyper once wisely put it that we ought to adjust ourselves to God's commands, not by force as though they were a yoke of which we should like to rid ourselves, but with the same readiness with which we would follow a guide through the desert, recognizing that we're ignorant of the path which the guide knows and therefore acknowledging that there's no safety but in closely following his footsteps. And so it is with our creator's guidance and wisdom concerning sex, discern that he knows best. Second. Determine to take good care of yourself, right? Take good care of yourself. If God knows what's best for us, if he's telling us in Proverbs 6 and 7 that sexual sin is not what's best for us, and we should listen and endeavor to take good care of ourselves, and, and, and notice here that this chapter is not at all opposed to a sanctified kind of self-interest and self-care, right? That The primary motivation given for avoiding sexual sin in this passage is just your own well-being. There there are a hundred reasons the Bible gives for avoiding sexual sin, but the one primary reason given in our passage, the one that's utterly clear in our passage this morning, is this, it's bad for you, and you don't want to do things that are bad for you. Rather, you should take good care of yourself. 1 Corinthians 6.13 tells us that the body is is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. 1 Corinthians 6.18 tells us that the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. He's saying sexual sin is harmful for you. It's damaging to you. It's a sin against yourself. And again, we said in the beginning here that you're being addressed here as royal sons and daughters of the king. You are objects of Christ's redemption. You are beloved. You are royalty. You are citizens of his heavenly kingdom. You are a royal priesthood. So treat yourself as such. 
Treat yourself with the dignity and respect becoming of sons and daughters of God. Don't diminish yourself with sexual sin and lust and pornography. Don't undermine your worth with fornication and adultery and all kinds of sexual sin. Don't degrade yourself. Hold yourself in high esteem. Honor yourself as an object of Christ's redemption. Walk in the dignity becoming of princes and princesses of the kingdom. Take good care of yourself. Next, devote yourself to the Word of God. Devote yourself to the Word of God. One clear prescription in our passage for protection against sexual sin is treasuring up the Word of God in your heart. Right? We're, we're, we're told to do this in this chapter in, in 6, 20, and 25. It's repeated in 7, 1 through 5. We're told to store up God's Word as if it's a precious treasure, as if we're hoarding a precious treasure. In other words, we're we're to meditate on it and memorize it and plaster our reality with it and all so that we might be protected from falling into sin, into sexual sin. Listen again, temptation to sexual sin is, is everywhere, as we saw earlier, and it's because we're seemingly constantly, consistently being confronted with it that we must be constantly and consistently ready with the word of God to wield the sword of the spirit in power. Psalm 119, 11, King David says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Right? John Piper once said, let us labor to memorize the word of God for worship and for warfare. If we don't carry it in our heads, we cannot savor it in our hearts or wield it in the spirit. And indeed, what what he's saying is the greatest weapon you can have when faced with temptation to sexual sin is the words of Scripture stored in your mind and heart. It would be wise to to memorize verses from Proverbs 5 and 6 and 7 and 1 Corinthians 6 so that when temptation comes our way, we would be ready with the sword of the Spirit to slay the tempter. Devote yourself to the Word of God. And last, delight in belonging to your Savior. Delight in belonging to your Savior. Earlier we saw that part of what's so alluring and seductive about sexual temptation is that it promises pleasure and attention. It flatters us by making us feel wanted and seen and delighted in. So often the reason people give themselves to sexual sin is because they feel something lacking in life that they think sexual sin could possibly maybe satisfy. Sexual pleasure to be experienced, a relational need to be met. They long for the desire and affection and attention of another. There's something missing and the world is quick to tell us that, well, sexual pleasure is the way to gratify and fulfill those longings. And in a world where that messaging is constant, in a world where sinful sexual pleasure is just a click or a text or a phone call away, the only way we're going to make it and endure in fidelity to God is if we know that those longings are ultimately aimed at and fulfilled by something greater than empty, brief sexual experiences. And what that ultimate thing is this, it's knowing and belonging to and being loved by God. The psalmist says in Psalm 90, 14, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. You see, when you know and experience something of the covenant love of your creator, it leads to a satisfaction and a lasting gladness that the world knows nothing of. And that is the basis, the foundation of a life of holiness and wholeness. Thomas Brooks once said that the main reason why men dote upon the world and damn their souls to get the world is because they're not acquainted with a greater glory. And here's the greater glory, Christian, you belong to and are infinitely loved by the God you were created for. And we know this Because he's shown us this in the cross of his dear son. God so loved you, dear one, 
that he gave his only begotten son. We know the love of God because the son of God took the judgment of God so that we might become sons and daughters of God instead. That's how you're loved. You're loved. You're you're delighted in. Zephaniah 3 will tell you that God sings over you. You belong to the infinitely glorious God. What could be better than that? And doesn't sexual sin seem so impoverished in comparison to that? That's why the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, tells us to flee sexual sin, to flee sexual immorality, and he gives us this ultimate reason why. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. You've been bought by the Son of God who gave himself for you. You belong now to the God who delights in you and who loves you and who's redeemed you. That's your reason. That's your power for forsaking sexual sin. That's your motive for not giving in to to its seductive power. That's your protection from its suicidal destination. You're loved. You belong to God. So flee sexual immorality. Let's pray. Father, seal this word upon our hearts. Store up this word now in our hearts. Store it in our memory. Store it in our our affections so that we might not sin against you. And we pray that you would seal it upon our hearts through the Lord's table that we're about to come and partake in. We pray that we would meet with you in this meal, that we would remember effectually the cross of your dear son in this meal, and that we would be renewed and empowered by participating in this meal to go from here and to live in wisdom and righteousness and wholeness for your name's sake. Pray all this for the glory of your name and in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.